belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for February 13th, 2022 is called, Who Gets It Best? The teacher is John Ray and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Again, good morning. My name is John Ray. Elementary kids, you can follow Miss Teresa back in the back. Um, glad to have that option this morning. Welcome to Grace Church, Northwest Arkansas. Those of you that are watching on the live stream or listening on podcast, we're really glad that you are here. So, uh, many of you know I grew up in the in the restaurant business. Does anybody know what the single worst shift to pull if you're a server is in the restaurant business? Sunday lunch, exactly. It is <laughs> It is by far the most dreaded shift in the restaurant industry. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is it, it follows Saturday night, and Saturday night is usually the busiest night. And so if you're working Saturday night, you usually just got a few hours of rest before you have to turn around and do it again. But that would be tolerable if the crowd that came in on Sunday was kind of aware of that and attuned to what was happening while you were there. But inevitably, across the board, it is it is just abhorred because the crowd that comes in, and it is usually right after church lets out, are the most demanding, the cheapest, and the worst tippers out there. And you make, on average, you make less on Sunday lunch than any other shift during the week on tips, and you're asked to do more. And it's it's just, it's cringeworthy as Christians who are also have ever worked in the hospitality industry to know that. Um, one of the things that Jane and I have done with all of our girls is we've almost insisted that at some point in their life they wait tables. So parenting tip here, just encourage you, get get your kids at some point in their life to work. Not, I mean, in a restaurant where they have to serve a table, where they have to come up and do that. And there are a few reasons for that. One is it's a fantastic insight into human personality and psychology. Waiting on people teaches you a lot about how people act, how they behave, what they expect with that. It's, it's just a, it's a great learning environment. Um, the other thing is that it's a great experience of what is described in the Bible. The word in Greek, the word deacon, is literally one who waits on tables. And in Acts, when we see the first mention of deacons, they were the ones who were going out and sharing the food with the people that needed it. And so it's, it's a biblical concept of doing that, of sharing food and doing that with that. But, but the third thing is this. Working in a restaurant helps you understand what it takes to get a meal on the table. It really helps you understand and appreciate that when you go into a restaurant and you see a menu and you can order, and literally within minutes you can have that thing delivered, well-prepared on your table, that's, that's nothing short of a small miracle in some ways that that happens. And I know... Those of us who, if you've never worked in a restaurant, if you've never done that, you, you come to just accept that as, as the norm. As, well, of course I can sit down and 
eat food that doesn't get me sick, that's clean, that's been well prepared, and prepared to my order. But unless you've been in a kitchen, unless you've been in the business and know what it takes, all the moving parts to take that and make that happen and make that variety available that way, you really aren't enjoying your meal to the full extent that you can. Because there's something about when we understand what it costs, what it takes to prepare something that makes us able to receive it more fully. It makes us, it makes us able to give thanks for it, to understand it more completely. So I want us to hold that idea as we look at our text this morning, because we're going to see some things that relate to this. Our text is Luke 7, 36. Now one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Then when a woman of that town, who was a sinner, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. As she stood behind him wiping his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with perfumed oil. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this and said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this was, what kind of woman it is that is touching him, that she is a sinner. So Jesus answered him. It's really interesting, right? He thought to himself, and then Jesus just sees and answers him. Um, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And this is obviously Simon the Pharisee, not Simon Peter. Say it, teacher. Jesus said, a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins, the other 50. When he could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. She gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Thus she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith is saved. You go in peace. Clearly understanding exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And understanding who we are and what we are about is essential to creating a real proper attitude of gratefulness. We have to really come to understand what is happening here. What is Jesus doing? And what is the need that he is responding to? What is the situation that Jesus is addressing? You see, because being grateful is not an emotion we can just make happen. How many of you love it when someone says, you just ought to be grateful? Does that make anybody grateful? Has anybody instantaneously gone, oh, you're so I, should, I, I feel such gratitude right now that you called me out on that, right? 
it, it, gratitude is gratitude is a is a it's a fruit. It's a result. It's a response to something else. With that, it's not just something we can create. And sustained gratitude takes intentional practice, willingness to learn and change our ideas about the way things are, and a willingness to be changed ourselves. So I want to say a few things about this this setting so that we can learn it, and then I want to give you my paraphrase as we've been doing through this series. So Simon the Pharisee is probably extending hospitality to Jesus and his disciples for a few reasons. Laura brought this up really well the other day. He's probably doing it because he's the predominant figure in the town. Somehow he's the religious leader, and it's expected of him. So he is expected to offer hospitality when, when a visitor comes in like that. And it's also a way of him keeping it and establishing or improving his place. By, by doing this, he's showing, yeah, you're right, I am the leader. I am the guy. So it, it, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit of expectation, but it's also a little bit of him getting to, to prove his work with that, you know, um, to do that. The second thing is probably, he's probably curious. Jesus is making waves. He's doing all these things. So he wants to find out what's going on. And, and there may be he's genuinely interested. We don't know. We can't really impunge his motives. Um, he, may, he may really want to find out what Jesus is saying with this. We, we don't know. But there are some things that we absolutely do know. First of all, a woman would never have been allowed in that meal room with the men in this culture. So the men would come in, the servants, and some of them women, and some of the wives, and some of the daughters of the household, they would have you know, helped them. And traditionally, they would have helped wash their feet and adorn them and greet them. But once the men were seated, if there was any serving to do and a woman came in, it would almost exclusively be a widow who would do this. And she would be covered head to toe, especially her hair would have been covered. It wouldn't have been revealed with this. They wouldn't have been spoken to. They wouldn't have been recognized. No one, none of the men would have said thank you to them serving. They would, they would, their presence would have been totally ignored if at all they were allowed in the room for some reason with that. So we need to really understand that in this setting, that this is an exclusively male um, space with that. So with that understanding, here, here's the, par the paraphrase. As Jesus and his crew wandered into another town, one of the local religious bigwigs invited them for supper. They all found their way to the table when a local woman, notorious for her bad behavior, got wind of who'd come to town. She grabbed the bottle of Chanel she kept as a saving and forced her way into the boys' only club. She made her way to Jesus and instead of using a towel, wiped off his dusty feet with her hair. Instead of water, used her tears and kisses and instead of oil, poured out the last drop of her perfume. Well, this whole show really embarrassed the host who fumed to himself, if this Jesus was a legit prophet, he'd know this hussy in her history. Jesus could tell exactly what Simon, the host's name, was thinking and posed him a question. Tell me what you think. The bank has two people locked up in debt, one for a good amount, the other ten times as much. When they both gave up, admitted bankruptcy, that they'd never be able to pay it back, instead of dropping the hammer, the bank let both off the hook, told them that someone had paid off the balance. Now, which one of these folks do you think is going to be more grateful? Simon offered up, I suppose, the one with the bigger bill. Damn straight, Jesus replied. 
Then turning from Simon, he looked straight at the woman who caused the stir. Simon, I want you to take a good, long look at this woman. Straighten her eyes. When I came in here, you didn't even offer to wash, you didn't even offer me water to wash the dust off my feet. But she bathed them with her tears and dried them with her hair. You held your distance, but she threw herself at my feet. You kept your oil locked up, but she poured out the very best she's ever had. You see, those who think they need just a little help will give you just a little thank you, and then they're done. Those who know they run out of all the options, but end up saved anyway, those are the people who know to really show gratitude. This woman knows. She knows the score. She knows what's been done for her. And that's why she's opened her heart and clings to her salvation as the most precious thing. But some others, <laughs> Simon, God, rest y'all, uh, some others figure they only got what was fair and square. And so they're quite content to write a nice little thank you note and take it from there. Jesus then said straight to the woman, it's all good. It's your faith that's made it good. So go in peace. At this, everybody started talking all at once. They thought he'd lost his ever-living mind. So who is this woman? And what do we learn from this? Well, first of all, it's, it's an interesting study in church history. And really understanding how Jesus treats the woman here and how historically women are treated, even within church spaces, that this character has been merged with other Marys in the Bible, including Mary Martha's sister, who we're going to talk about next week, but also Mary Magdalene, who was um, with Jesus at the end. And they've they've taken and they've kind of made a composite Mary and then flattened her character out. In a way, they've deep depersonified her and made her just a result of her actions here. But from every indication, and I can I can argue this, and other scholars have as well, that this is a unique woman. This is not Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary Martha's sister. This is unique anointing. And even though this anointing takes place in all four Gospels, the other three takes place in Passover. This is early on in the ministry. And this is an anointing of the feet, not of the head. There's all kinds of differences. This is a very specific woman with this. And we need to recapture her humanity. We need to see her as the person she is, not a composite character, not as a type, not as a trophy, which is often done. Because that's what Jesus is doing here. Again, for us, look, I, I can look, I can look Stacy Ellen in the eye, I can look you in the eye, right? Like, that's not a cultural faux pas for me to do that here. So when we read this and we see that Jesus says, look at this woman, it just washes over us. We don't understand what's going on. But he is breaking one of the most strict social taboos that can be broken at this time. And he's doing it even after the woman herself has done the same thing. She's broken the taboos by coming into this place and doing what she's doing, even touching, exposing her hair, doing these things, are all just incredibly shameful things within the culture, Jesus' expected response would be to turn his back on her. 
look at this woman. It's his response. This is incredibly groundbreaking. It is an affirmation of her femininity, of her personhood, of her restored and affirmed place in the created order of God's created order. Remember, this is Jesus doing this, affirming her in this. It's also an attack against this duality that we have that um, was advanced by the Greeks and we've adopted in our culture that things that are good are spiritual, are ideas. Things that are bad are bodily. The senses of our body, the things we do with our body, that those are shameful, that those should be hidden. And that if we were truly spiritual, we would be divorced from our emotional responses. We could just do things out of a pure intellect, in a way, or a pure spiritual thing. And what we see here, Jesus is not only affirming her femininity, he is affirming affirming a sensual response. Now, I want to be careful how I use that word. I'm not saying it in a sexual way, but I am saying sensual. Is that she is using her body. Her body is not an object of shame. It is not something to be hidden. It is not something to be excused or made apology for. But she is allowed to engage with him, with who she is physically. Again, this is a radical thing. And it's not just a radical thing in the way that women have been shamed historically by by having agency over their own body, but how all of us as Christians have been taught wrongly that our faith is supposed to be just up here. That it's just a matter of believing the right things. That if we have any kind of emotional, visceral response, it's wrong somehow. Unless it's just some kind of pure, ecstatic, wonderful worship experience. We're fine with those. As a matter of fact, often we demand those. But the whole other range of human emotion somehow seems cut off off limits. Y'all, read the Psalms. Most of them are lament. They involve accusation. They involve pain. They involve doubt. They they involve anger. They involve questions. They also involve our bodies, the way we feel. The pit, that feeling we give in the pit of the stomach. The pain we feel sexually. It is an affirmation of our humanness in that, that Jesus is doing here. So these are incredible things, but the, the message, right, what Jesus is saying here, is pretty easy to get. It's pretty easy to see. The one that's universal for all of us is that our level of gratitude is going to be directly tied to our understanding of what's been done to us or for us with this. Now, here's where it gets sticky. Just like I said, hey, you know what? You just need to be grateful, right? How well that works, right? Well, the danger is that that's what you're going to hear me saying right now in a a more nuanced way. But the danger is when I say, hey, how grateful are you? you're instantly going to feel shame. Or you're going to feel frustrated. 
you're going to go, oh, well, dang, I don't feel very grateful. I must not be a good Christian. I don't want you to feel that way. Listen, we need to be able to honestly assess this. We need to be able to honestly look at this without shame, without accusation. We need to be able to honestly go, God, I want to be grateful, but I don't know that I am. Because there's a lot of questions here when we start getting into this. What, what do we say to the person who suffered years of abuse in church? We're telling them to be grateful. What about the person who's struggling with chronic illness? What about the person who feels the opposite of gratefulness towards God? They feel like God doesn't care. They feel like God didn't hold up God's end of the bargain. They feel like God is the last one who sees their pain, their suffering. We're just like, no, you just need to be grateful. Here, take a couple more Bible verses and be grateful. There's a lot of questions right now. When we start, when we start moving it away from just the performance orientation, moving away from the legal obligation and go, well, I, I, I get it. I want to be grateful, but when I really think about it, when I'm really honest with myself, I, I feel anger or I feel disappointment. Or I feel nothing. I'm just numb. I just really don't care. If God exists, wonderful. If he doesn't, fine. What do we do then? How does that work? Well, I don't have an answer. But I have some thoughts. The first, the first goes back to, and we can't encapsulate this here. There's, there's not enough time. But it first goes back to really understanding what the gospel is. Okay? Yes, this woman is called a sinner. Yes, he says her sins are many. But it is, is it sin that is the problem? Who has the problem in this story? Is it the Pharisee and the crowd or the woman? The Pharisee in the crowd. They're the ones who are the, that the lesson is directed at. The woman is affirmed that it's her faith that's made her all this possible. She is held up as the righteous one here, even though she's called a sinner. So we need to get away from the stumbling block of that word. So if it's not our sin that separates us from God, what is it? Contrary to our teaching in the four spiritual laws and all those things that we grew up with. Listen, y'all, sin is not a problem with God, for God. Sin is a problem, okay? Hear me say that. Sin is not a problem for God. God has taken care of the sin problem. The thing that separates us from God is not our sin, it's our self-righteousness. That's the problem the Pharisee and the crowd have. Their problem is their self-righteousness. Their problem is the assumption that they have been forgiven little. Their problem is they think they're better than the woman. Their problem is they've taken the stance that they've got it all together. We're the ones who are giving things out here. We're the ones who are pure. We are the gatekeepers. 
We're the ones who understand. This woman has been judged and cast out, disqualified, depersonalized. That is the sin that is keeping them from God. That is the sin that keeps all of us from God. Is assuming that we don't, that we've got it all together. Assuming that we don't need God. Assuming that we are the ones with that. So we need to start by understanding what the gospel is. We need to really start by understanding what it is, what is the problem here with that. And the second thing is we just need to quit doing it by ourselves, folks. None of us is going to make it out of here by ourselves. All of us are going to go through seasons where we don't care where we don't believe, where we've got questions, where we're not grateful. All of us are going to have that. I've had that happen. been huge chunks in my life where I just did this because it was my job. That's why I was a Christian. It's because of my job. Nothing else. No inward conviction, no ecstatic response, no, not even, maybe there was intellectual assent to a degree, but for the most part it was just, it's what I get paid to do. And that's okay. Because I was in a community of other people who were believing for me. Who were walking with me in that. Who were bearing witness that my immediate res- emotional response to the moment may not have been true. You see, when we walk around and we feel those things, but we see someone else and we go, well, they're still sticking in there. Laura is still walking in that way. So maybe the way that I estimate this at this moment isn't correct. She's not making me feel shameful. She's not condemning me for the thing. She's just bearing witness to where she is. So that allows me to work through that to the place where I need to be. Y'all, none of us can do this alone. I cannot do this without that. I can't. I can't walk it alone. None of us can. With that. So, so we need to, as we look at this, we need to first, let's go back and understand the gospel. Understand what it is, what's the problem, what's, what's being addressed here. And then let's commit to do this in community. Like, let's really commit to do this in community and understand, to lean into that community and let that community lean in to us. The last thing here, and this relates to the restaurant analogy, but we need to get rid of the Walmart imagination. And now I'm not bashing Walmart as the problem here, okay? I'm not, I'm not, but I will say this. Walmart is a is a great distillation of the imagination that says cost less, live better. You see, our whole imagination is steeped with the idea that that the bargain is the good thing. That it's almost a sin to pay full price. That we have almost a moral obligation 
to spend less to get the better deal. And the promise of that gospel, and it is a gospel, is that we will live better. Nothing could be more opposite to the true gospel, which is give everything. Hold nothing back. Give it all, and that's how you live better. Don't withhold. Don't spend less. Don't concentrate on getting the bargain at someone else's expense. Because listen, if you get a bargain, it is always at someone else's expense. Somewhere, somewhere down the supply chain, when you're paying less, it is costing someone else more. The gospel is antithetical to that. And so we have to break out. We have to understand what the gospel is. We have to commit to doing it in community. And then we have to break out of this, this bargain estimation. And we need to give. Not, not just give more. Again, I, I want to say this clearly so you don't feel like I'm shaming you or telling you one more thing that you got to do that you can't do. I just want us to understand that we have everything we need. That we have the promise that in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, we have been given everything we need for life and for godliness, that we can give without fear. We can give without reservation. Now, we're all human. We all have limits. Got it. We all understand that. That's what, Again, we're doing it in a community. There are times where I got nothing. That's why we take the offering. We say it every Sunday. The offering is symbolic that all of us have something to give and none of us is without need. But that's never equal, y'all. That's never on the same level. We come in here and some of us have got a lot to give. And some of us are desert dry. We need to receive. We're all going to go through seasons. Every one of us. But we need to live that way. We need to understand those seasons and respond to it with this gospel generosity. With this way of estimating that the more I give, the more I get. Not the more I take. Not the more I save, but the more I give, the more I get with it. And I think if we do these three things, maybe, I can't promise you, I can't promise you anything. But maybe the gratitude will come. We'll start to really understand as we give a lot, what has been given for us. It, just like working in the restaurant, right? We start to understand, oh my gosh, when I'm getting that, that costs that person. They're doing this. They're giving out of the most. They're, what they have, it, it creates. It's not forced. It grows. It's not artificial. And of course, that, that becomes freedom for everyone. It becomes freedom for everyone. Even those that we have tried to block out, even those that we have diminished and depersonalized, it spreads. That generosity brings life across the board. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here and we're going to take communion here. And y'all, I, I just real honest with you, I haven't been feeling great this week, so I'm going to slip out here. Um, Shannon's going to do the benediction as we go. But I've really wrestled with this this week. Um, 
in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's the danger of you hearing me almost every week, right? Is that if I tell you one week, hey, this you really need to listen to this, then you're like, well, what, do, what am I supposed to do the, the other Sundays? But I really want us to get this. I really, really want us to get this and see what is going on. So go back and read this. Look at the community groups that are offered, the table groups, the table fellowships. Pick one. There are questions in the learning guide for reflection on this. Chew on it. Don't just believe it because I said it because I've got the microphone, but wrestle with it and see what happens. This table is is a reminder to us. It's a practice that Jesus didn't hold anything back. Jesus wasn't looking for a bargain. (laughs) He gave it all. He gave everything. His blood, his body. He gives us his spirit. He gives us life. We take this communion as a reminder. People, you come out of the aisle, just remember to stay distanced as you come up to take it. And also just the reflection. Commit now. Write it down. What do you need to do? What do you, how do you need to act on this? And then again, we have the offering. The offering here is just, it, it, again, it's symbolic. Yeah, we need it to keep the church running, right? To do the things we do. But it's also more than that. It's worship. It's symbolic. We all have something to give. We all have needs. So, thanks for being here this morning. Really appreciate it, y'all. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.